Hello and welcome to this uh, live stream. My name's Tom Rablick, an author and journalist, and thank you for joining me. One of the biggest issues that's been kicking around in the defence circles certainly has been the issue of what we do to get locally engaged employees out of Afghanistan that have been working for Australian and other forces, incidentally. The Taliban are gaining ground, and, of course, uh, that tends to mean people in overseas jurisdictions like Afghanistan who've worked with a Western government are under threat. There are reports that people are receiving death threats uh, overnight and people are actively in hiding, moving around from house to house and trying to stay, keep themselves alive in a situation where they've got no idea what is likely to happen. As someone who knows a bit about this, a bit about the role played by these employees, uh, is uh, the founder of Forsaken Fighters, Jason Skanes, is a former Defence Force member. And Jason will talk to us about a range of issues that matter in terms of what we need to be doing uh, to get people out of Afghanistan. And he joins me now. Jason, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Absolute pleasure. Now, what do you, before we begin looking at Afghanistan, can you describe what Forsaken Fighters does and how Forsaken Fighters works? Yeah, so uh, Forsaken Fighters was uh, was essentially founded in uh, 2016, um, but we became a, an incorporated entity in uh, June of 2018. And uh, essentially what, what we aim to do is we advocate uh, for veterans. Uh, I'm a veteran myself. Uh, and also for what we term as mission essential personnel, which were those like our interpreters and others that we uh, we engage with uh, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, who, as a result of their association with uh, coalition forces, in, in particular Australian forces, uh, now find themselves at significant risk of persecution and danger if they are to remain in their own country. So our, our role is to advocate on their behalf um, and assist them um, and, and provide advice to them and, uh, and just basically raise their, raise their concerns and their voice um, with, uh, within government and also with the Australian public. Coming to, to, to Afghanistan, um, the, the members of our Defence Forces and staff at our embassies develop very, very close working relationships with uh, the locals that are employed. Describe what sort of relationship people like yourself uh, who've served in the military, military have with individuals like the interpreters. Yeah, look, the relationship we form with these interpreters is one that has to be of absolute trust. And, you know, they are key to us being able to conduct our uh, operations across Afghanistan. Uh, you can't conduct counterinsurgency operations without communication. Uh, and that's the type of operations that we're engaging in in places like Afghanistan. Um, and they are absolutely critical. They're, they're the linchpin. The relationship that we form with these interpreters, as I said, is one of absolute trust. Uh, it's a bond that we have uh, and we have to form very quickly with these interpreters. And I, I think none more typifies uh, that bond uh, than looking at Mark Donaldson, VC, who was awarded his Victoria Cross for risking his own life to save that of his uh, Afghan interpreter who was injured uh, during an ambush on uh, on one of his patrols. 
So that that really typifies the type of uh, relationship that our veterans, uh, our defence members, form with these interpreters. Uh, you're very obviously familiar with the interpreters you've uh, dealt with over the years, uh, and the kinds of things they've gone through. Can you can you describe what we do to people that we employ as interpreters for for the military. What what process do they go through? So most of the like the interpreters, uh, for instance, uh, that was uh, they were contracted uh, by uh, a company called uh, IMS and, and later MEP. Uh, there was a, a contract of over seven hundred million dollars for that uh, company to uh, first of all recruit. Uh, these uh, local nationals as potential linguists uh, and they would then um, gauge uh, their, uh, their level of um, ability to speak and read and write uh, and interpret uh, English uh, and then they would uh, conduct a basic background check on those individuals uh, being a, uh, a character check which includes um, any, uh, any offence uh, history that they may have uh, in Afghanistan and then they were also charged with uh, conducting the counterintelligence uh, screening process uh, of those potential applicants as well for positions as linguists. Okay. The, to what extent are um, the security checks done uh, to, to look for any membership of the uh, for want of a better term, very fringe political movements in, in, in countries? Yeah, look, it's, uh, the, the background checks are pretty uh, thorough uh, before those individuals are engaged uh, to assist coalition forces, obviously because they are facilitating uh, essentially the conduct of, uh, of large-scale missions uh, across Afghanistan. So they're actually uh, integral uh, to conducting those operations. So the the type of um, uh, background checks that go into uh, before we hire these individuals is pretty thorough. Uh, what they then need to do is undergo those uh, types of checks depending on uh, what level of uh, classification they hold as an interpreter. There were three levels, category one, two and three. And they all have certain security clearances in regards to access to um, sensitive information. And uh, they would either conduct those counterintelligence screening um, assessments every three to six months, depending on which category they were in. Uh, so that's the process, the interpreter that you've gone to bat for uh, in the courts would have gone through, correct? Yes. And I suppose the issue, Tom, is what we're seeing is a lot of these uh, interpreters that have undergone this process, they went through the recruiting process, they've been through and worked with coalition forces for many years. Uh, coincidental or not, what we did see was around 2013 when the announcement uh, that uh, coalition forces were drawing down uh, our presence in Afghanistan, uh, all of a sudden you have uh, what we seen was a number of interpreters that had been through this process, uh, had worked with us for years, had been able to wear an Australian combat uniform, live on our base and roam freely among us um, for years, all of a sudden uh, starting to fail these counterintelligence um, 
a screening process um, that they would have to undertake every three to six months, they were then failing this process. And we thought that, that was quite unusual that uh, all of a sudden these people that have been trusted for years, facilitating and partnered with us, conducting these operations, are all of a sudden failing this, this uh, counterintelligence um, review process that they undergo every three to six months. Um, was that coincidental in regards to the uh, announcement of drawdown of forces because something that we would need less of would be interpreters, I would imagine. So um, that's quite, that, we found that quite interesting um, at the start. And upon further investigation, what we have learned since then is during the counterintelligence screening process, there are two types of mechanisms that are used to conduct that screening. And these are publicly available, so I'm not divulging anything uh, classified here, but they use the uh, PCAS or Preliminary Credibility Assessment Screening System, uh, which is essentially a handheld lie detector. Um, it's very, very different to a polygraph um, in the fact that it removes completely the polygraph, uh, the, sorry, the PCAS examiner completely from the equation. And it's solely reliant on the, an algorithm that's built into that system. And what we have found is that algorithm was specifically designed to deliver more red lights than green lights. So, and it was never to be employed to be a final decision-making tool. It was employed to be, uh, to par down larger groups and to act as a triage device. It was never to be used, it can't be used on coalition forces. It can't be used in a court of law. Mm -hmm. um, and I believe that the government is using uh, those counterintelligence uh, reports or summaries on those individuals uh, as a means to deny humanitarian visas to those individuals that may have, at some stage, filed their CI screen. Okay, well, that leads me to the next question, because the observation you've made that, that there may be certain reports that are used by government to deny passage out of Afghanistan, whether it's to, to deny passage to Australia completely is, is I guess, a, a separate issue. Um, the, the implication of statement seems to be that these records exist somewhere and people can get hold of them. Um, where's the chain of custody, um, to your knowledge, of the, this material? Having, having uh, had a look at the contract that was used uh, for these uh, for this company, um, which was uh, paid by the US government, um, they need to keep those records uh, for 20 years. So the records are available um, there for, those, for the conduct of those uh, reports and uh, intelligence summaries, uh, and they're held with the, uh, with the contracted company uh, who conducts... They get, they're the ones that contract uh, and go out and conduct these counterintelligence uh, reviews, uh, and therefore they're the, they would be the parent uh, company or organisation that holds that information. I would imagine that it's readily available on request by government, but it's it's something that we're that the access to the program, the lead program, access to the visas, uh, is a responsibility that we've abrogated back to the individuals to either know about that that program exists, understand they may have an entitlement, and then try and apply for it. 
and often wait very lengthy uh, times for their application to be processed. It, it also appears, at least to me, and, and, and I'm open to be corrected if I've got this wrong, that it's a fairly complex web of sort of a chain of custody for documents to be able to track things down. Um, it's clear documents exist. It's clear people have to um, keep them. Um, why, is there, why is there a burden being placed on the applicants to sort of present that kind of information to government? I think there's a couple of um, there's a couple of issues, and you're right. It is an extremely complex problem, and uh, the gov government has uh, has recently touted that you know this was a, a policy brought in under the Labor government, uh, which it was in 2008 for the Iraq uh, interpreters, uh, and it was extended in 2012 to Afghan interpreters. And the difference between now and back then was in 2008, we actually sent a team, we understood that it was a really complex process and a team of immigration officials were sent in, which is essentially what we're calling on today. Uh, a team of immigration, immigration experts were sent in to assist those people deemed at risk to compile their applications and conduct character checks and then arrange for flights to get them to safety. Um, which is very different to what we're doing today. We're abrogating that responsibility uh, back to those uh, individuals and we're offering them no assistance and no help at all. So we're leaving them to fend for themselves through a very, uh, very lengthy, very um, complex and bureaucratic process. Um, and the in regards to the information that's held by, uh, by organisations um, that are probably... Um, very separate to government organisations, and this is what's holding up this process. We're seeing that those government organisations um, having to request from these organisations that information um, in regards to those individuals. So I think that's, uh, that's holding up uh, this process quite considerably. Now, uh, while this process is moving at what I gather appears to be a glacial pace. Uh, what What's happening on the ground in Afghanistan? Uh, you've probably got uh, some, uh, some feedback from people uh, you talk to. Uh, what's the situation at the moment on the ground? Yeah, look, the, the situation uh, is deteriorating uh, day by day uh, in Afghanistan. And uh, we see a, a resurgent Taliban wanting to uh, plunge uh, that area that we've, we've been there assisting for the last 20 years, uh, plunge them back into the dark ages. And, um, you know, we've, we've seen uh, beheadings, we've seen, uh, you know, public beatings uh, of women uh, and those type of things, uh, which is all extremely concerning, particularly the veterans that, uh, that went there at the will of government um, to, to do some good. Uh, and we were, we, we did achieve great things and I think everybody that served in Afghanistan can be uh, proud of their service and the contribution we made over the last two decades. Uh, and I think uh, General Petraeus, uh, US uh, commander of, uh, of coalition forces in Afghanistan said uh, today that he, uh, he believes that the decision uh, to withdraw from Afghanistan 
uh, will be one that we reflect upon um, and that we look at and, and say, was that the right decision? He says, probably not. And I, I tend to agree with him. It probably wasn't the right decision uh, or the right time uh, to do that. Um, obviously, when you build a uh, close bond with uh, with people uh, over there, uh, this kind of thing has a bit of an effect on you. Uh, you've been dealing with the case of your interpreter, uh, and that's been going on for uh, for about eight years, if, uh, if I remember rightly. What does that mean for you personally? Because it's um, you, you've taken up the fight here. What's happened? Yeah, look, I, uh, my interpreter applied uh, this uh, this month in July 2013, and um, you know here we are eight years later, two federal court cases uh, where he won his last federal court case in uh, in February uh, 2020, okay. and the findings were handed down in May of 2020, uh, and essentially the findings from the full bench of the federal court were that they uh, they quashed the minister's decision and they directed the department to process his application in accordance with law. Now, you know, that uh, at that stage, he'd been waiting seven years. Uh, here we are now at the eight-year mark, uh, 15 months after that court decision, and he still remains in Afghanistan. Um, now, the issue well, that we... Hold on, has somebody lost the file? Can't they find the court decision that told them um, what they need to do? What, what's the explanation you're getting? It, we, we don't have one. We're, we're still waiting um, on any correspondence from the department. Uh, and, you know, the court uh, mentioned, the judges mentioned that this should be processed without delay, having regard to the amount of time that has lapsed since his original submission. So... That still hasn't occurred 15 months after that decision was handed down. Can I just pause my phone, mate? I've got it on. Sorry. Is that all right? <laughs> so we don't get annoyed. Uh, sorry. You can hear it going off there, and I'm waiting for somebody to call. I'll get back. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, no, that's all good. Maybe, yeah. uh, but I mean, at the end of the day, that. There's a personal impact on you, isn't there? Because you've engaged with these guys one-on-one. Um, -on -one, you've engaged with them on a daily basis. They've been with you in uh, situations most Australians wouldn't even, you know, imagine or even understand. Um, what's it like personally for you? Look, it's, uh, it's, it's had a huge uh, impact on, on myself and uh, both uh, personally, financially and my family as well. Um, you know, this is something that when you see something that is, that is not right, you feel compelled to, uh, to work towards fixing uh, that issue. It doesn't help uh, when you have a government uh, who doesn't want to engage uh, with you at all. Now, it took me five years uh, to get my first meeting uh, with uh, the Minister for Home Affairs at the time, uh, which was Peter Dutton. It took me five years. I, I requested meetings many, many times um, with the Minister to discuss these very sensitive issues. 
uh, and talk about this case in particular and try and uh, work a way forward, um, see how we can improve this uh, visa application and processing um, that, that they've had out. Um, and at no stage uh, were they interested in engaging. And so what I ended up doing was I left my, my job. I was a CEO on a very uh, well-paid salary. Uh, and I left that job to start this organisation and advocate full-time uh, for interpreters uh, and our veterans. And, you know, it's uh, for me, it's I wake up every day and I'm thinking about my interpreter. I'm in regular contact with him. Um, and to see that, uh, and still, you know, I was down in Parliament in June and I requested a meeting with any any minister um, of, of the current government to meet with me. I was down there for four full days uh, and not one minister had uh, the time uh, to sit down and meet with me. I met with Jackie Lambie, who was uh, fantastic. I met with uh, a whole range of other individuals, uh, Neil James from the Australian Defence Association, uh, John Blackson at ANU. Um, I even uh, met with the um, consul for um, for, uh, for Afghanistan uh, in Canberra, but uh, not one minister was able to meet and discuss this very timely, uh, rapidly evolving issue that faces these Afghans that assisted us. Um, there's been a bit of, uh, obviously, there's been some uh, media coverage of one of your, uh, one of your colleagues over uh, over the past 24 hours, um, having uh, Stuart McCarthy, obviously, having uh, sort of burnt the, uh, the the service medal for Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Service medals are important to people in the military, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They're, uh, they're extremely important. They, they tell a story of, uh, of where you've been and uh, what you've been involved in. And, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine that Stuart uh, was feeling, um, and I have spoken with Stuart, I know that he is feeling uh, very let down uh, by government uh, because they haven't, uh, he has written to them, as I have, um, on numerous occasions to... Uh, to talk and try and share information and our experience and knowledge of uh, Afghanistan in this process um, for it to only fall on deaf ears and uh, to not even get a a response from government um, really shows their, I suppose, disdain towards uh, how we feel that we're being treated. And um, obviously, um, Stuart's felt very passionate about that. Stuart has uh, nearly three decades of experience with the Australian Army a couple of tours in Afghanistan, and I know that he had uh, an interpreter himself that was uh, that was killed whilst he was in Afghanistan, uh, which is probably why he feels extremely passionate um, and emotional uh, on this on this topic, this issue. Yeah, um, uh, Jason, where do you? I guess where do you take things now? We're we're in July. Um, I know that there are there are lawyers working to get 140 odd people approved, and also aware of the difficulties of uh, tracking down and bringing interpreters from various parts of Afghanistan mm. that may be under Taliban occupation. Mm. Where does it go to now, in your view? What are you what are you sort of looking at? Yeah, look, I think there was a, there was a couple of great opportunities there that Australia uh, has missed out on. Uh, we had a, a great opportunity to, first of all, uh, lead the way uh, and show 
uh, the rest of the uh, international community uh, on what mateship means here in Australia uh, and the lengths that we go to to look after those that assisted us. And, uh, and we could have led the way with uh, an extraction uh, evacuation um, uh, operation where we, we could have went in while we still had a reasonable uh, coalition footprint on the ground to make those and facilitate those operations and make them a little bit easier, we would have been able to get in and, and get those individuals out. But I think this has shown that we didn't have a plan. We didn't, uh, we didn't really understand uh, the, the impact or consequences. Um, we've then had a, a bit of a second bite at the cherry where the US is now uh, leading the way with this with Operation uh, Allied Refuge. Uh, and we had an opportunity to probably join that uh, that operation and, and uh, at least get those, our, those that assisted us uh, to an area of safety uh, where we could process those individuals and undertake the relevant character and health assessments. And, mm -hmm. uh, and again, Stuart uh, has mentioned that he'd written a brief uh, for, uh, for government in regards to how we could conduct those uh, operations. And certainly uh, Forsaken Fighters have been advocating uh, that we could uh, move those individuals to a safe third country, uh, somewhere like our Minhad Air Base that is set up for house thousands of people. We could move them there. We could send in immigration officials as we did in 2008 and we could assist these people through that very complex web of uh, application and certification process under this LEAD program. Um, so I think there's a couple of missed opportunities there. Uh, where do we go in, in the future? As I said, the... Uh, the environment in Afghanistan is rap rapidly deteriorating day by day. Um, you know, the, the only thing really left for, for government to do is to conduct uh, a, an emergency rescue evacuation operation uh, of those that assisted us uh, and move them to a third country. And if we continue to say that we're going to process these applications, as we have always done, then that historically takes uh, years and years to process these applications. It even states it on the application itself. It says these applications may take 12 months or longer to process. That is not, the, uh, that is not telling me or the Australian public that these applications are afforded the highest priority processing. Um, highest priority processing says to me would mean that it's a lot less than 12 months. Um, so 12 months or longer to process these, these applications is unacceptable. I think it's negligent, in fact, uh, that we haven't reviewed the system and we're allowing it to take years to process these uh, applications. You're, uh, you're probably more adept at analysing the military logistics and most of uh, the people that are going to be watching this uh, that don't have a defence background. Um, how much more complicated is it now to go in and extract people? Look, I think it's uh, it is it, obviously uh, as each day goes by and the, the security situation there deteriorates, um, becomes more complex as the coalition footprint uh, continues to dwindle and fade. So um, you know we do have the added advantage though of uh, knowing we've been there for two decades. We know the country well. Uh, we know the landscape, the terrain, the people. Um, we, we have a pretty good uh, understanding of the environment uh, that we'd be going into to conduct this. So uh, it's obviously any sort of evacuation operation like that is, uh, has some uh, element of danger and risk associated with it. Um, but what is the risk of doing nothing as well? 
is what we need to look at. So. Oh, look, Jason, that's actually a sobering point on which to, to, to conclude our conversation uh, today. Where do people go to find out more about Forsaken Fighters if they, in fact, wanted to do a bit of uh, ferreting around on the web? Yep. Uh, you can go to www.forsakenfighters.org.au and, um, and any support that you can give, whether that's uh, a donation uh, or even whether it's just writing something as simple as writing a letter uh, to your federal uh, politician or uh, federal member for parliament and, um, and requesting that they, uh, that you're showing your support for uh, for Sagan fighters, for our Afghan allies and, uh, and pressuring government to, uh, to take some action on that would be great. Jason, thank you so much for joining me to go through this particular uh, sensitive and... and, and timely issue uh, in relation to uh, locally engaged employees that we've had working for us in Afghanistan. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure.